Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. So far, we've been focusing quite heavily on the use ad bellum regime. That is the international law regime that governs the use of force. And less so on use in bellum, or IHL, which is the international law regime that governs the conduct of armed forces in armed conflict. But in today's episode, we turn the lens inward to look at domestic legal regimes that implicate the use of force in armed conflict. But before getting into the introduction to that, let me just make a quick request of all of you. If you're enjoying this podcast or finding it useful for your students, and I have heard from a number of listeners that they have been assigning episodes to their classes, please do spread the word. Tell your colleagues or share it on social media. And if you have feedback, suggestions for topics or people you would like us to have on the show, please do send me an email. My email address is on the website. This is episode nine and was recorded in early September 2020. And my guest is Mona Hathaway, who certainly needs no introduction to the international law and national security crowd, as she is a renowned scholar of international and foreign relations law and an expert in the area of national security as well. She is the Jared C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law and Counselor to the Dean at Yale Law School. She's also cross-appointed as Professor of International Law and Area Studies at the Yale University Macmillan Center. Ona served for a year as Special Counsel to the General Counsel for National Security Law at the U.S. Department of Defense, and she continues to serve on the Advisory Committee on International Law for the Legal Advisor to the U.S. Department of State. And she is, of course, the author or the co-author of the wonderful book, The Internationalists. But as I intimated earlier, despite the fact that Ona has this deep expertise in international law, she's also an expert in foreign relations law, and therefore the interface between international and constitutional law, and has written fairly recently on the issue of war powers or the domestic law constraints on the use of force. Her focus is, of course, on the U.S. war powers regime, which operates at both the constitutional and the legislative levels, and we discuss the history of these regimes and how they operated or more accurately, didn't operate most recently in the Libya intervention. But our discussion delves more broadly into some of the theoretical justifications for different kinds of constitutional and legislative constraints on the executive power to take the country into armed conflict, and why it is that many constitutions around the world vest some power in the legislature to approve or constrain the executive branch's ability to go to war. And so this discussion should be of interest to non-American listeners as well. And separate and apart from war powers, we also discuss another issue that Ona has recently written about and which I am becoming more deeply interested in, which is whether crises such as the coronavirus pandemic or the unfolding climate change crisis shouldn't force us to rethink how we conceptualize national defense and whether it makes sense to keep distinguishing between national security and human security. And finally, towards the end, we do talk a little bit about the writing of her acclaimed book, The Internationalists, which she co-authored with Scott Shapiro. I was particularly interested to hear about the process of co-writing such a large project. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Ona Hathaway, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking time for this. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking the guests of the podcast to share something about themselves, and that is something a little off the wall or even just something that most of your colleagues wouldn't know about you. 
Gosh, what is something that my colleagues would not know about me? Well, I've been at Yale for now almost 20 years, so there isn't a whole lot <laughs> they don't know these days. I guess maybe what got me interested in international law. So I grew up, as, as many people I think who study international law, the daughter of an immigrant. My mother um, immigrated from the Netherlands in her 20s uh, to be a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And I grew up in Oregon, which where, you know, people don't tend to talk a lot about international law, or at least in the circles I grew up in, but always had a kind of international outlook because of that experience and traveling to go see family in Europe. And I think that's what sort of initially ignited my interest in the issues that I now study. Interesting. Well, well, I'm envious that you have family in the Netherlands to visit. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) 21 cousins. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's lots of reasons to go back to the Netherlands yeah. uh, for vacations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we could talk about many different things today, as you've been doing work on a number of really interesting issues in virtually all areas of the laws of war, including, obviously, your incredible book, The Internationalists, which we'll circle back to talk about at the end of the episode. But I thought we'd start with some of your recent work on war powers, as we've not yet on this podcast had an episode that looks at the domestic law constraints on the use of force and armed conflict. So, so you have a draft article on SSRN on revising the war powers resolution for purposes of reviving congressional war powers, as well as an essay in Just Security written in the aftermath of the U.S. targeted killing of General Qasem Soleimani, in which you and Jeffrey Block suggest ways for using the courts to bolster congressional oversight of war powers. So I'd like to spend some time digging into these, but it strikes me that we should perhaps lay the foundation for that conversation by talking about constitutional war powers in the U.S. more generally in terms of the constitutional war powers provision and then how and why the war powers resolution was passed and a little bit about how the war powers resolution operates before we dive into the details of how you were suggesting the war powers resolution ought to be modified. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about all of that. So just to start with the constitutional text piece of it. So many know that the president of the United States is a commander in chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. And that's cited frequently as one of the reasons that the president has a significant role in making decisions about committing U.S. troops to interventions abroad. What gets a little less attention is the array of congressional authorities over war making. So we certainly hear often the fact that Congress is the one that has the power to declare war. And so the Constitution does expressly give that authority to Congress. And that division was done significantly because there was a belief that we didn't want the powers of the president to be equivalent to the powers of the English king, that you wanted to have Congress to play a significant role in making the decision about whether to commit U.S. troops to war. But that's not the only provision of the Constitution that gives authorities to Congress. It also gives authority to Congress to raise and support armies, that is to provide for the money to support uh, the military and explicitly states that it shouldn't appropriate money for more than two years, probably because the hope was that every Congress would have an opportunity to vote on it. So Congress uh, lasts for two years. So every member of Congress would have an opportunity to make a decision about whether to authorize any ongoing military operations. There's also a provision to provide for and maintain a Navy, to call forth the militia, to issue letters of mark and reprisal. So there are lots of authorities relating to war powers that are granted explicitly to Congress. So it's clear that the framers had a vision in which they 
imagine the president would certainly be playing a central role in making determinations about committing troops to military operations and directing those military operations, but he couldn't do it without Congress. Right. And yet that provision seems to have been ignored for the most part, for the better part of the 20th and now the 21st century. Yeah, there's been a gradual and continual erosion of the role of Congress in making these decisions. And, you know, we've seen that getting worse and worse and worse over time. So, you know, if we look at the modern era, Congress has not voted on a authorization since 2002 when it voted to authorize military intervention into Iraq. The main source of legal authority that presidents have relied on for most of the last two decades to engage in massive counterterrorism operations abroad and significant war in Afghanistan is an authorization voted on by Congress in 2001, right. which if you read it, and I know you have, is very limited in its intent, right? It, it says that Congress really, that Congress intended, if you read it closely and if you look at the history of that authorization, which was passed days after the 9-11 attacks, um, on the United States, it was really about responding to those attacks and going after those who carried out the attacks and those who supported them. And yet today, we're still using that for massive counterterrorism operations around the world. And that's, I think, deeply troubling that Congress hasn't come back and made decisions about whether, in fact, it actually wants to continue those operations and what scope it sees is appropriate for these military operations. So Congress really has, its powers have really atrophied it plays less of a role than ever in making those decisions. And that's part of what has led me to try to write about this issue. Right. And you've tackled this by looking more specifically at the War Powers Resolution, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment. But, but there has been this debate in the United States about how one should interpret the War Powers provision of the Constitution, right? So that there are those who say, well, the provision refers specifically to declaring war. Countries don't declare war anymore. Therefore, this is not anachronistic. Well, there are others who say, well, yeah, but actually we should interpret this in a purposive manner that, that declaring war and issuing letters of mark and letters of reprisal were incident to commencing armed conflict. And that's clearly what Madison and other drafters had in mind. And that's how we should interpret this. I, I take it you have a view on that. Yeah, I do. I think if you look at it in context, suggesting that declaring war was a very kind of formalistic kind of they they signed a piece of paper and that was the only role that Congress was really meant to play, misunderstands the role of declaring war. I mean, really that was understood to be the way in at which war was initiated at the time, right. but this has changed globally. So globally now, declarations of war are generally not issued, but states still initiate wars. And if you look at the discussions in the Federalist Papers, if you look at the discussions at the time of the Constitutional Convention, if you look at the state debates, if you look at the general understanding of the issue, I think to suggest that it was really merely a formalistic role is just a very crabbed and just frankly inconsistent with the, with the broader context. And just looking at the Federalist Papers, Hamilton explicitly says over and over again, yes, the president is supposed to be commander in chief, but that authority is specifically limited by the authority of the legislature to be able to constrain um, and that it's only the legislature that has the power to initiate war um, that is at the time to declare war. So, yeah, I think that that view is much too narrow and, you know, taking this in kind of a very out of context. And if you look at it in context, it's clear that what they meant was to give Congress the authority to make a determination as to what, 
whether we should start a war or not. Right. And it's my understanding that Madison in particular, and this is again reflected in the Federalist Papers that you just mentioned, that Madison was of the view that this was a check on executive power, precisely because he thought that presidents or executives in government generally were more likely to be captured or were more likely to have parochial interest in starting wars and foreign adventures, and that requiring congressional approval and spreading the decision across branches of government would reduce the incidence of armed conflict. And yet we've seen in the 20th century, ever since World War II, the last time the United States ever declared war, that the executive branch and presidents in particular have questioned the necessity of getting congressional approval, period, even for fairly large conflicts. And so I guess this leads us into the, the question of why the War Powers Resolution itself came into being. Yeah. And, and I agree with all of what you've just said. I mean, it, there has been this sort of gradual erosion of congressional authority. And the downside of that is that you only have one person to hold accountable for the wars um, that we are waging, which is the president. And part of the original vision was that that the representatives of the people would be accountable for war and that there would be a democratic debate about a determination as to whether we're going to launch a war and get the country involved in a situation where it was putting its people in harm's way. And unfortunately, we've we've moved to a situation where we no longer have those democratic debates about really important decisions about whether to involve our our troops in war, not only putting our own people at risk, but of course, uh, leading to the death of people abroad. But in 1973 was the last time Congress really in a significant way pushed back. So the War Powers Resolution was passed in significant part because there was a discovery that there had been a secret bombing campaign in Cambodia and that the president had not briefed Congress on this bombing campaign. And there was real concern that what that indicated was that Congress just didn't know what the president was up to and, and was also not being asked to make a decision about whether to initiate a war against an entirely different country that was certainly in the region in which we were involved in a, in a conflict, but not directly involved in the conflict itself. Right. And so the War Powers Resolution was meant to reassert those authorities and was meant to provide a kind of set of tools and mechanisms for Congress to learn about what actions the president was taking that might embroil us in wars and to create a system for Congress to push back against what it considered to be misguided decisions by by the president. So and it was part of a kind of general effort in the mid 70s of Congress really to push back against assertions of presidential authority. You know, some of this is part of the post Watergate reforms as well. You see a significant kind of resurgence of Congress, reassertion of institutional um, prerogatives during this period. So it's of a piece with that set of moves of Congress to kind of reassert its role as an institution and as a counterbalance to the president. And really is, I think, a very important um, marker of kind of congressional efforts to reassert its constitutional authority. Right. But it runs into, into trouble right away, right? Nixon, of course, vetoes the resolution. Congress overcomes the veto. But there are these allegations that continue to dog the resolution, as I understand it, that uh, there are certain provisions of it that are unconstitutional. So yeah. perhaps we could talk a little bit about that and, and also maybe just give listeners who aren't familiar with it a sort of a thumbnail sketch of, of how the resolution is supposed to operate. Yeah. So the basic idea of the resolution is that it asserts that or reasserts, um, reaffirms the, the point that Congress is the one that really 
has to initiate any significant military intervention. And so it says that the president is commander in chief, but he can only introduce armed forces into hostilities or to situations where forces are likely to imminently be involved in hostilities if there is first a declaration of war, which again, we've talked about hasn't really happened for a while, but theoretically could. Right. Second, alternatively, a specific statutory authorization. So Congress can pass a law basically saying the same thing that a declaration would say. That is, here's what the president's allowed to do. Here's a military intervention he's permitted. The laws we talked about before, the 2001 authorization for use of military force and the 2002 authorization for use of military force in Iraq. Those were both that kind of authorization, specific statutory authorization. And then third, they did say, look, if we're attacked and it's a true emergency and the president has to defend us, then yes, he can respond to a national emergency, but he very quickly has to return to Congress as soon as he can to get authority to move forward with any ongoing military operations. And so first it asserts, you know, and and reaffirms that the president really does have to come to Congress if he wants to get us involved in, and they use this term hostilities, I think we'll return to that. And then it has a reporting system, which basically says as soon as a president does get us involved in hostilities or situations where hostilities may be imminent, he has to report to Congress and let them know what he's done and let them know what the uh, operation is, what the extent of the operation is, and then he has to regularly report about ongoing operations. So it's that's partially to sort of give Congress more visibility into what operations are taking place to try and avoid that secret bombing campaign problem that really was part of what initiated this, and then to reassert the authority of Congress to actually make decisions about intervening abroad. So those are kind of twin pieces. And each of them has kind of broken down in various ways. So the reporting, while presidents have often said that they regard that as unconstitutional, nonetheless, they have reported consistent with the resolutions that they use that language consistent with. So they don't recognize the legality of the obligation, but they have generally complied with it. So that part of it has been fairly successful. The piece of it that has been less successful is the requirement the president always come to Congress when he's going to involve troops in hostilities before he involves them in hostilities. Right. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is some presidents say, look, this term hostilities isn't war in the constitutional sense. And the president has authority to act as long as he is not engaging in war in the constitutional sense. That's when Congress gets to get involved. Right. Up until then, the president's commander in chief has authority and Congress is asserting more than its constitutional authority by saying hostilities here. Now, I think that the reason that Congress chose the term hostilities, which I think was a strategic error, <laughs> frankly, um, and a drafting error, but I think there was a reason for it which was that they wanted to kind of set the bar a little bit lower so that they would learn about operations before they became a war. So if you were sort of getting us involved in something that was sort of edging towards a war, we want to know about it and we want to be warned of it. And we don't want to wait until something is a full-blown war before we get notified and we have an opportunity to do something about it. They made it clear that they understood in the House report that hostilities was said to encompass, quote, a clear and present danger of armed conflict. So it was setting a lower bar than war for a very particular reason. 
But that use of that term hostilities is also given executive branches the capacity to, you know, infinitely interpret that term in ways that have really diluted the power and effectiveness of the limitations. And then the main way in which they enforced the resolution was that they had a provision allowing for Congress to pass a concurrent resolution rejecting any use of hostilities by the president. So if it's notified, the idea was they can pass a concurrent resolution, which means concurrent resolution means it is not subject to presentment to the president and therefore isn't subject to a veto by the president. Right. Now, the problem with that (laughs) is that in the early 80s, that the legislative veto, which considered called a legislative veto, that is an act to reject an action of the executive without presentment to the executive, was challenged in a case that became a decision of the Supreme Court in INS v. Chadha, saying that legislative vetoes are unconstitutional. Right. And that has been interpreted to mean that this provision of the War Powers Resolution is ineffectual and unconstitutional because it doesn't require presentment to the president. Now, for very good reason, because the president has just initiated a war and you're going to tell him you want him to stop that war. You don't want him to be able to veto that resolution, because if he can veto it, then you have to get two thirds vote in both houses to overcome it, which is nearly impossible. Right. So it puts Congress in a very bad position. There are lots of people who think that's an overreading of Chada and that Chada's misread to prohibit this provision of the War Powers Resolution, but it's become conventional wisdom. And so people, even those who think that properly read Chada doesn't lead to the view that this is unconstitutional because it was dealing with a one house legislative veto, not a two house legislative veto, and lots of reasons to potentially limit Chada. But that fight is not worth having at this point because right. that ship has sailed. And so it does mean that although Congress has this reporting mechanism in place and that has been pretty successful, it's kind of in a tough spot if it wants to stop the president from engaging in an operation that it doesn't like because it no longer has this authority to pass a concurrent resolution. And so all that it really can do is pass a law, which again is subject to veto by the president or refuse to pay for it. But these days the budgets are so big that the Department of Defense can basically fund any operation for a very long time. Um, So the entire 2011 Libya operation, there was no separate appropriation for that. DOD just paid for it out of its own purse that it already had buckets of money (laughs) to pay for that operation. So they didn't have to go back to Congress and say, hey, give us some money for this Libya operation because they just had plenty of money to be able to fund the operation. So that authority has not uh, been as effective as it might otherwise have been. So these are a few of the reasons that that the War Powers Resolution, while it really was an important effort by Congress to reassert its constitutional role, just hasn't had the effect that I think was hoped. Okay. So that brings us then to your draft article. Am I right? This hasn't been published yet or has it? Yes, there's a symposium in the Texas National Security Journal that it's part of, and then they they have separately published it as well. Ah, so, okay. yeah, the draft is on SSRN. I should replace that with the final version. Yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. come out. So I will make sure that we have the link to the final version on the website. But so diving into that, you begin, in fact, in that article by suggesting that Congress should revise the War Powers Resolution by addressing the use of the term hostilities. But before I get to that, 
and you've now raised a question that I, I'm curious as to the answer, and you don't really address it in the article is, do you have a position on whether Congress should revise the War Powers Resolution to address the constitutional objections? I mean, should they, they do away with the provision of the resolution that gives rise to the so-called legislative veto? Or what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of revisions that are that would be warranted. I think they could strike the legislative veto. I'm not sure it's worth the effort because basically it's effectively treated as if it had been struck at this point, but it would be a kind of nice cleanup job to do that. Right. I think most importantly, because they now don't have access to that, they need to give thought to what does replace it. So whether they strike it, you know, they take it out of the legislation or just leave it there where it's sort of a constitutionally defunct provision, they really need to give careful thought to if they don't have access to that, what do they have? And what tools do they have to press back against a president who's taking action that they disagree with? And, you know, have they given up too much, you know, by giving these giant appropriations, by allowing hostilities to be defined in the way that it has, by not having their own lawyers to do battle with the thousands of executive branch lawyers, they really have kind of unilaterally disarmed themselves in this fight. Right. So then let's dive into the first point, which is to redefine or to replace the term hostilities with something else. And so maybe we could begin by just looking at the uh, sort of the practical aspects and how hostilities was defined out of existence in the Libyan intervention. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the War Powers Resolution uses the term hostilities, which you know, they had their reasons for doing that, um, which was to try and sort of set a lower bar, but it created all of these problems because it wasn't, they didn't define it in legislation. It's a term that is sometimes used in international law, but not really in this, in this way. And so it created this uncertainty about what they really meant. And in the Libya intervention in 2011, which your listeners may recall, Gaddafi was threatening to obliterate um, his opponents and engage in a massive humanitarian uh, catastrophe. The United Nations authorized an intervention to address the humanitarian catastrophe in the U.S. together with many NATO allies and others came to the defense of the people of Libya in responding to uh, in carrying out an operation in response to the threat posed by Gaddafi. There's some who think that that operation exceeded the authority and the Security Council resolution. We'll put that to one side. Right. But it did succeed in eliminating the, the government of Gaddafi. But the operation lasted for some time. And so the War Powers Resolution says after your report, you, the 48 hours report. So after you initiate hostilities, you have to give a report within 48 hours. And then if after 60 days, Congress hasn't authorized that intervention, you need to stop. And so they did the 48 hours report and they, there was a sort of long period where we were all wondering, are they going to come back to Congress? Are they going to seek authority from Congress to, to continue the operation? And the answer was no, they never sought authority to continue the operation. I think they believed they wouldn't get it. And so they offered instead an interpretation of hostilities that U.S. contributions to this effort weren't hostilities. And many thought, and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post at the time saying, you know, that's a wrong interpretation of the War Powers Resolution. We're engaged in massive bombing campaign that 
that's killing a lot of people and that is, you know, is using more armament than was used in um, some of our most significant wars uh, historically. And to call that not hostilities is really to gut the term hostilities. And we, we basically were the key actor in, in getting rid of a government of Libya. And so many think, you know, I worry that that was sort of the sort of coup de grace of the war powers resolution, that this right. is sort of the moment at which, you know, if hostilities doesn't encompass a multi-month operation with, you know, dropping of significant ordinance and successful upending of the government of a country, what does it cover? And, you know, that really raised concerns about whether our powers resolution has any real effect going forward. And there was some real irony here, right? I mean, so I still remember your colleague, Harold Coe, who was then legal counsel to the State Department addressing the American Society of International Law. And everybody was entirely convinced and persuaded by his arguments on the international law aspect. But when he is author of the National Security Constitution, an important book on this issue said, but this doesn't constitute hostilities. And therefore, there's no requirement for us to get congressional approval. People were taken aback. <laughs> and yes, <so laughs> yes, that is very true. And he testified in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he offered an explanation of right. why he took that position. And it's been reported in the New York Times by Charlie Savage that there was a great deal of internal division within the U.S. government on this issue. So while Harold took the position that this was not hostilities and therefore Congress didn't need to authorize the intervention continuing past 60 days, Jay Johnson, who was then general counsel of the Department of Defense, took a different position. His view was it did constitute hostilities. Caroline Crass, who was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, also took that position. And basically, White House counsel sided with Harold and President Obama himself, it said, made the call. Fascinating. And decided to go ahead and move ahead. So, yeah, so this was not something that was uncontroversial even within the administration. And, you know, I think they understood that this was, at the very least, an extremely close call. Certainly not clear that it was not hostilities. But the problem is that the term is not defined. And so it's open to this kind of constant redefinition by administrations. And Congress really is not in a position to do anything. You know, so if it thinks this interpretation is completely ridiculous, it could have pushed back harder in the hearings than it did. So that would have been one way in which to just sort of at least uh, express a kind of strong view. But there were definitely members of the Senate who spoke, who found the position not convincing and said so. But what can they do? There's very little that they can do. They didn't have to approve money because the Department of Defense was just paying for it out of its existing coffers. And so it, it really is stuck between a rock and a hard place when it sees an intervention that it disagrees with and thinks that its constitutional authority and, and legislative authority under the War Powers Resolution are being ignored. There's very little it can actually do to make that effective. Okay. So Let's flag that to come back to. So what, what do you suggest that they could do? But before we get to that, you, in your article, of course, make some suggestions as to how to redefine hostility. So let's perhaps address that and we'll come back to sort of the tools that Congress could try to create for itself. 
Yeah, well, I think the two are actually in some ways connected because I think what it needs to recognize is that the war powers resolution as it currently exists is no longer as effective as it should be in reasserting that constitutional role for Congress in making these decisions. And among the things it could do is to redefine hostilities or, or even define hostilities because it's never defined. Right. Um, it could replace hostilities with a different term. That would also be a way to, to do it. But one way would be just one simple fix is simply to insert a definition of hostilities. Right. There are different people with different views about the right way to do this. One possibility that I offer is to try to link up the definition of hostilities with international law's view of when it is that you're involved in an armed conflict. Because the idea there would be, you know, before the United States gets involved in an armed conflict, it is appropriate for Congress to play a role in making a determination as to whether that is, as a country, a decision that we want to make. Is that a, is that a position we want to take? And so linking the two, I think, has a kind of nice symmetry. It also, once we're involved in an armed conflict, opens us up to retaliation um, by the other side. And so it's also appropriate, you know, before we put ourselves in a position where the other side legitimately can respond to our actions um, for Congress to play some role in making that decision. So I make the argument for linking up international law and domestic law. There's some I've spoken with who said, you know, if you make that too clear, you know, Congress is not going to go for it because they don't, you know, anytime you tell them that they're agreeing to abide by international law, many of them are allergic to that. And so... That's a decision for those who are involved in the politics, I suppose. But but I think that there's lots of good reason to think that one simple way to deal with this problem is just to plug the hole that Congress itself left when it used a term that didn't really have a definite accepted definition and then didn't in term define it. There's proposals from the Open Society Institute as well uh, of a slightly slightly different definition, but effectively, I think, gets to the same place. And the idea there is just let's be clear what we mean by hostility so it's not open to an interpretation that an ongoing significant bombing campaign doesn't constitute hostilities that Congress has to weigh in on. So let's be more precise about that term so that it's clear when the president is acting in contravention of the requirements of the resolution. Right. Okay. And so just to leapfrog to the third issue or recommendation that you make, just because it, it also involves international law. So I think keeping with the theme of incorporating or at least using terminology and concepts from international law, you suggest that the War Powers Resolution should have a clause that prohibits or, or at least limits the extent to which the executive can engage in armed conflict in violation of the principles of use ad bellum in international law, a, a concept near and dear to my heart. So let's let's talk about that yeah. for a moment. Yeah, near and dear to my heart too, as you know. <laughs> so the thought here was, let's just be really clear about this. I mean, it is already binding on the United States that, you know, when charter is binding um, as a matter of international law, but because all treaties are supreme law of the land, it's also binding as a matter of domestic law, but presidents don't always treat it that way. And so this is why I say reaffirm that right. <laughs> rather than state that. So reaffirm that use of military force and contravention of international law is prohibited. That would sort of draw a line in the sand um, and say, look, anytime you're going to act in a way that's inconsistent with the obligations under the UN Charter and not to engage in aggressive war, that is prohibited as a matter of domestic law as well. Now, again, 
arguably because it's an international law obligation, it also translates into a domestic law obligation through the Constitution. But this would just really make it very clear and make it part of kind of Congress really taking a clear position that these kinds of actions are prohibited. Now, if there was ever an instance in which, for whatever reason, a war and contravention of international law was justified, there's nothing stopping Congress from coming back and changing that. Um, but it would require a vote of Congress to do so. And that, to my mind, also seems appropriate. So if you want to clearly violate international law, that is not a decision that should be taken lightly. That is not a decision that a president should be able to make on his or her own. It should require the legislature to weigh in on that decision. So that is part of why I really thought, you know, making clear that this prohibition is a matter of domestic law and international law is a way of, of kind of trying to at least circumscribe some of the most abusive actions that, that presidents might be inclined to take without consulting Congress. Right. And, and this is, of course, entirely consistent with a lot of theoretical work that's been done by people like Tom Ginsburg in, in other contexts regarding the incorporation of international law principles, particularly in the constitutions of new and emerging democracies where they incorporate international law principles as a way of locking in democratic norms and raising the costs within the domestic legal and political system of violating those norms. And so it's a way of sort of entrenching pre-commitment devices. And of course, there are a few constitutions in the world that have incorporated the principles of use ad bellum in this way. So I'm a, a big fan of this uh, provision. I, I'm curious, since this has been published, I mean, has there been, have you had any feedback uh, or pushback on this particular uh, recommendation? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who understands the law agrees that this is clearly a good idea. <laughs> I get a similar response, though, from sort of folks, political folks who say, whenever you say anything nice about international law, members of Congress get skittish. And I do think that's a, actually a really sad commentary on the state of the conversation about international law. And I'm not sure that it actually is reflective of what Americans, generally speaking, think about this. So there were polls done at various points about various proposed interventions and would American people support it if it was in contravention of the UN Charter or if it was consistent with the UN Charter? And Americans cared about right. whether it was in violation of international law. They were much less likely to support a military intervention if it was um, inconsistent with international law than they were if it was clearly consistent with international law. So I'm not sure that members of Congress are really reflective of the views of their constituents on this matter. But they, I guess some of the organizing around these issues has been effective enough that people are a little bit skittish about it. But I still hold firm to the idea that really what we're doing here is reaffirming an existing obligation. Um, right. And you cite Tom Ginsburg's work. And what's so interesting is if you look at the U.S. Constitution in comparative perspective, the Constitution as written is among the strongest in the world in terms of the incorporation of, inter of international treaty commitments into our domestic law, right. that it makes our treaties supreme law of the land. Now, the Supreme Court has managed to sort of unread that <laughs> in various ways and sort of make us question what that actually means. But it's pretty clear that the UN Charter, for instance, is binding on the United States, both as a matter of international law and as a matter of domestic law. So this is really reaffirming an existing obligation. I think once people hear that, they're much more willing to be 
in favor of this. And I think part of what I'm trying to do here and in some of the other provisions is to say, let's not have definitions or requirements in the War Powers Resolution that are wholly unique to the resolution. Because if you do that, it's just so easy for lawyers to kind of play with it and turn it into something that you didn't intend it to be. Right. So if you anchor it to something that has, you know, an external body of experts who can say, yeah, that's a good argument or no, that's a really bad argument, right. um, then it's much harder to manipulate. And so that's part of why I want to tie the definition of hostilities to an international law definition. And that's part of why I'm interested in making clear that a, a action in violation of the UN Charter is prohibited because it gives a kind of place for those who are experts on international law to say, you know, these are good arguments or they're bad arguments. And I can right. explain why in relation to a whole set of materials that are not unique to this particular set of questions. And I think that would help address the kind of backsliding that we've seen over the years with the War Powers Resolution and the kind of infinite reinterpretation of its terms. Right. So let's then go back to this issue of what are some of the tools that Congress can use, given that the sort of legislative veto is, is not available to it. And the second recommendation in, in your article is to introduce a provision that creates what you call the rules of limited war, sort of sunset clauses. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is drawing on some work that Bruce Ackerman and I did back in 2011. So I've been thinking about this for some time where we noticed even back then when the 2001 authorization for use of military force was only a decade old rather than nearing <laughs> in on two decades old, that we had a problem, which is that Congress authorized a war, which it clearly intended to be very limited and that that limited authorization was being used very expansively. And so we tried to lay out a set of general rules for preventing that from happening. So there are two different ways in which you can do this. One is just to say, whenever you pass a new authorization, you just have to include a sunset in that authorization. And I think if we have learned nothing else from the last <laughs> two decades, that is the basic lesson that we have learned is you should never pass an authorization without a sunset ever again. Even if right. it's a two decade sunset, it, you really have to include a sunset because otherwise these things just are almost impossible to get rid of. So if you pass a revision to the 2001 authorization, a new authorization that repeals existing ones, you really should embed a, a sunset in those new authorizations. But then the question is whether Congress could generally sort of bind itself to the mast right. and pass a set of rules that say, whenever we pass a resolution in the future, it's subject to a set of rules. And those rules basically say it can't last forever. Right. And here are some ways in which that would be constrained. And so that was the argument we made in 2011. I think we actually made a pretty good argument. So I sort of re, <laughs> re, uh, reaffirmed that. And I think we've only been proven more right over time, given that these, these authorizations are still in place, still being used, still unrevised, and now being cited for things that everyone acknowledges are just kind of beyond the pale. For instance, the Trump administration seemed to be signaling that it thought that the 2001 authorization, which again was passed after the 9-11 attacks, and really about responding to the causes of that attack, seemed to be inclined to argue that that might support um, a military operation against Iran, right. um, which had nothing to do with, right. with the 9-11 attacks at all. Right. And so people, I think, are increasingly seeing how dangerous this kind of leaving this lying around for decades 
might be and that, you know, we really have to kind of try to foreclose that. The arguments that have been made against it in the past is it's like declaring defeat in, in advance. Definitely people have made this proposal. This is not unique to me. They've said, you know, we really should have a sunset in here. And then the response is, well, you're just telling the enemy when we're going to go home. They have to last us, you know, outlast us X amount of years. But I think that's, that's a misunderstanding. All that it says is that you have to come back to Congress in that amount of time. Right. Right. So it just means, so say you have a three-year sunset. It just means that within three years, you've got to come back to Congress and say, hey, I need to actually continue this fight for another three years, or I need to continue this fight for another year or two. So that's all that it says. It doesn't say we're going home. It doesn't say we're necessarily done with it. It just says you're going to have to go back to Congress and explain the justification for continuing the operation. So, and what it does is it switches the default so that it's much closer to the original constitutional default, which is that no operation should be happening without congressional support. Right. Yeah. So I was supposed to be playing devil's advocate and pushing back on all of these, but it strikes me that, I mean, it's exactly right that this argument that somehow requiring congressional, or as we're going to talk about in a moment, judicial so-called interference or participation in decisions on, on going to war or engaging in armed conflict somehow makes it more difficult is, is a problem. And, you know, I think Madison and others would say, but that's not a bug. It's ex- exactly a feature. It should be more difficult. Right. And, and if it's necessary, you're not going to have any trouble convincing Congress or the courts. But if it's not necessary, I mean, if, if there are problems with your argument, then it should be difficult and you should run into some resistance. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm entirely persuaded. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I suggest two years because that mirrors the original requirement in the Constitution that there'd be no appropriations that last more than two years. That was intended to require that every Congress have to vote on a decision about whether to continue an operation. And so the idea, and back then, and this we document this at much more length than the piece that Bruce and I did in 2011, you know, back then appropriations really did last just for two years. And you really did have to come to Congress right. to say like, Actually, I really need this money to continue this operation because without it, you couldn't continue that operation. Nowadays, they have such big buckets of money that that no longer is an effective constraint. And so you need to recreate that constraint through limits on the authorizations that you're granting to the president to engage in uh, military operations abroad. And as you say, it just means that the president has to come back and explain why this continues to be a war worth fighting. And that seems like a fairly limited obligation. You could even incorporate within it a kind of fast track procedure so that you, so it won't be held up by a bunch of amendments so that the debate within the committees would be much more expeditious so that you would actually be guaranteed to vote on the floor of both houses. You know, so there are ways of kind of undoing um, some of the impediments that have held up these efforts before, you know, that could be part of a broader deal. And that's part of what Bruce and I suggest in sort of suggesting we could have a a kind of framework statute that would lay out how you would do this. It would both limit any authorizations going forward and then say, look, when you're coming back, we can have a way to fast track a decision. So you actually get a vote because there is the problem that sometimes Congress's response is just to not make a decision. Right. Now, I'm not as worried about that as some because I think a decision not to authorize a war is a decision. But it's sometimes frustrating to presidents because they feel like, well, they should have to own their choice not to authorize this operation. You know, so when President Obama went to Congress and said, you know, sought a ISIS specific 
authorization for use of military force in 2014. And Congress held a couple of hearings and then kind of dropped the matter without voting on it. Now, it was able to do that because the president's lawyers came in and said, we have all the authority we need. We're going to wage this war whether you approve it or not. Right. Um, we've got authority under the 2001 authorization, but we'd really love for you to pass another authorization specifically addressing ISIS. Congress held a couple of hearings and understandably, it was like, yeah, why would we own that? Why would we accept the political risk that's entailed right. in doing that when you, we know you're going to continue the operation anyway? But they never took a vote. And I think that was frustrating to many of the president's lawyers because they feel like, well, they should at least own the fact that they made the decision not to proceed rather than just kind of letting it die a quiet death. There are ways of doing that, right? So these, right. Are all, these are all obstacles that are easy to overcome if you want to. Um, and the problem is that there hasn't been enough kind of wherewithal to try and really address these problems in a serious way. So I guess that leads to this question about, so I'm, not, you know, I'm entirely persuaded by all of your arguments. I think many people are. But the question is, yeah, but so what? You know, John Hart Ely made some of these arguments in his wonderful book, After the Vietnam War, with a scathing critique of Congress saying, you say you were duped, but actually a lot of these actions of the government were entirely consistent with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which you made so ambiguous and open-ended, which goes back to your issue of sunset clauses and, and more precision. And Congress did very little. And so they did, of course, enact the war powers resolution. But I guess the argument would be that Congress often doesn't want to own its decisions and doesn't want to enact legislation that's going to force it to make decisions. This, in a way, I think, brings us to your second essay, which was in Just Security, which is using the courts to try to bolster and maybe put a fire under Congress to take ownership of and exercise its constitutional authority. But how do we sort of get Congress to take back its power here? Yeah, I mean, I think you point to really what is the fundamental problem and the real challenge for those of us who care about congressional powers in this area. Is sometimes it feels like Congress doesn't care as much as we do because they seem perfectly content to sit on the sidelines. Now, looking at it more favorably to Congress, I think part of the problem is that there are many members of Congress who do care deeply, but who find themselves kind of in a fix because they could spend lots of political capital trying to address these problems and get nowhere. And so you see this, for instance, in the effort to push back on U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition and its operations in Yemen. So Congress has actually passed a couple of times bills that would prohibit the U.S. from continuing to provide support to the Saudi-led coalition and calling that support hostilities and inconsistent with the War Powers Resolution to not have sought Congress's assent to that ongoing operation. And the president's vetoed it. Right. And so they go through a lot of effort and a lot of time and invest a, a significant amount of floor time and, and committee time and just can't get anywhere. And so you can understand when members of Congress go through that a few times it gets hard to really convince yourself that that's a good way to spend your time in the best interest of your constituents. So part of the problem is that the way in which the law is currently set up is it so defangs Congress and makes it so difficult for Congress to be effective in pressing back. The incentives that it creates for members of Congress is to just give up because why would you bother? I mean, there are a couple of reasons I'm hopeful that we might see some movement. So, you know, I do think that the Trump presidency has been so abusive 
um, and so dangerous that many realize that, you know, leaving these authorities lying around is just not a good idea and we really should do something about it. Now we'll see what happens if Joe Biden is elected and whether Democrats still are enthusiastic for limits on war powers um, or not. I hope so. Right. Um, I hope so. I hope we've learned our lesson. But I will tell you that Bruce Ackerman, I felt pretty lonely during the uh, Obama administration arguing for, for limits on, on war powers during that period. So we'll see um, right. whether that continues. But part of the idea in my proposal for giving Congress authority to go to the courts is that one problem that Congress runs into is that what happens if the president's breaking the law? Right. And it's pretty clear the president's breaking the law. What do you do about it? Well, previous efforts to challenge it in court have generally been kicked out because the courts have held that individual members of Congress don't have standing. And they have also held that it's in violation of the of political question doctrine. And so part of the argument I make here is let's give Congress some of the tools it needs to actually challenge this in court. So Congress can itself give its leaders the authority to actually challenge these actions in court. There's decisions of the Supreme Court that make it clear that as an institution, Congress can challenge and probably even an individual house can challenge a decision of the president that's in contravention of its constitutional authorities. And so creating some tools for it to be able to actually do that. And political question doctrine is a prudential doctrine, not a constitutional doctrine. So that's another case where Congress could say, look, we don't want you to apply political question doctrine in these cases. We actually want you to s- decide them. Right. And then that would give you access to the courts as at least one way to press back against illegal action. And at the very least, publicizing those illegal actions and, and making the president answer for his or her decisions, which are in clear violation of international and domestic law. So that's one tool. It's not by itself enough. You know, I think all of these things we need to revise the war powers resolution. I think we need to repeal and replace the existing authorizations for use of military force. I think we need to make sunsets just an automatic part of any new authorization, either through a set of sort of blanket rules or just making it part of how we proceed going forward. And I think we need to allow Congress to challenge these actions in court so that you actually can get a hearing about the legality of these decisions and not just be subject to the president sort of declaring his legal position and nobody being in a position to effectively challenge that. Right. Well, listen, we could spend another hour just talking about the role of courts and judicial review in war powers. But I did want to touch on two other things before I let you go. And I know I've taken a lot of your time already, but that's great. There was a couple of essays you wrote recently, one in Just Security and another in Slate. And I think there there may be some others that I, I have missed, but where you are one of the leading voices saying in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, we really should be rethinking how we conceptualize national security. So 9-11 resulted in the death of almost 3,000 people, and it led to massive wars and interventions overseas. And here we are in the midst of a pandemic. And when you wrote your just security piece, I reread it yesterday. It was striking that, you know, take 10,000 people had died. And here we are now today where 190,000 people have died. And yet you could argue that the government response has been pale in comparison to the response to 9-11. And you're saying, wait, surely this should cause us to rethink what we mean by national security. If we really think that saving American lives is really the primary concern of the executive branch. And of course, 
as I'm reading this and, and as we're talking about it, I also want to bring in if COVID-19 should implicate national security considerations, climate change is the bear that's sort of right behind it on, on its heels. So perhaps you could uh, walk us through this. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, you know, I, I was spurred to write that piece when I was hearing these these statements from the administration that like, oh, you know, we're going to keep this hundred and 150,000 deaths and that's going to be a win. And, you know, it's not worth taking these restrictive actions because that's going to strangle the economy, you know, even if it's going to save tens of thousands of lives. And Having worked in the Pentagon and worked in the area of national security, I just found this so shocking because we think of a single American life as worth saving. Right. Um, and we plan massive military interventions for the purpose of limiting fairly small threats to Americans. Now, we might think about whether that's a good or a bad idea, but it's premised on the idea that all American lives are worth defending and protecting. And so this cavalier attitude towards human life, I just found so alien and so inconsistent with everything that I had ever worked on in the national security sphere. And really what I understand to be the premise of U.S. national security thinking, certainly since the, since the end of World War II. And so I just was prompted to write to say, like, this is crazy. And we need to really rethink what we mean by national security, because if we're willing to spend billions of dollars on massive military interventions, to limit fairly small threats to Americans. And we're not willing to spend you know, money to have sufficient masks and PPE for our first responders and for those who are really on the front lines trying to deal with this crisis, which is what was happening at the time that I wrote. That just misunderstands the meaning and purpose of what I thought national security was about when I got into this business. And your writing on climate change, I think is exactly the same idea. You know, We need to be thinking about broader threats to human life and flourishing. And we may have to rethink our priorities. We need to be thinking about, you know, where are we spending our money? How are we allocating our time and energy as a nation? Why are we spending so much money on really expensive advanced military equipment? And meanwhile, people are not getting adequate health care that could save lives. And meanwhile, we're also not addressing the massive global threat of global climate change. And part of the reason for that is people say it's too expensive to retool the economy to prioritize green energy. But then we're going around and spending lots of money on other things that are premised on the idea of defending Americans. So I felt like it's, it's important for us to actually think about taking a step back and thinking about what our priorities are as a nation. And in a way, COVID is, is a wake-up call. Climate change should also be a wake-up call for us to really think about how do we want to allocate our money as a nation, our attention as a nation, what do we want to prioritize, and have we kind of got our priorities all wrong for at least you know, the last 20 years since 9-11? We've been so focused on counterterrorism that we've let some of these other really important priorities atrophy, and maybe it's time for us to reset that balance. Right. Again, we could we could talk about this as well for another hour, but perhaps one more question on it is this. Have you sort of taken that thinking any further? And, and you mentioned your experience in the Pentagon, your you know, defense legal uh, advisor. So you have experience within the beast, so to speak. I mean, how do you 
think about resetting this. People would, I think, recoil in horror at the idea of securitizing healthcare. But is it a question of expanding our notion of national security? Is it just actually shrinking national security and, and distributing our scarce resources in other ways? Like, what are, what are the implications of rethinking national security in this sense? Yeah. So, so one concern that was raised so after I wrote this piece is, oh, no, you know, we don't want to turn everything into national security because that then activates all these powers that the president has and he's going to assert all these authorities. And that is not what I meant. So I didn't mean to sort of turn it into national security in the literal sense so that we're activating authorities that are considered to be activated when we're talking about an issue of national security to the United States. What I did mean to say is, as a nation, we need to think about what our priorities are. So when we're setting budgets for the federal government, should we really treat the defense budget as completely inviolate and be expanding it significantly every year? Or should we think about whether that money really appropriately should be spent elsewhere in places where it can be spent to more effectively address threats to human life? And I don't know exactly where I would end up in this, you know, if we took it seriously. But our whole counterterrorism policy has been centered on the idea that any risk, like any minimal risk, is too much. Right. Like there is no risk worth accepting. And so we are going to create a situation in which we completely respond to every possible terrorist threat. You know, so ISIS has never carried out an attack in the United States, and yet we're going to engage in a massive multi-year operation against ISIS on a basis of self-defense, right. even though it's not clear they ever had any intention to engage in any operation against any Americans, certainly outside the region. Should we think about whether those billions of dollars that we're spending, maybe we should repurpose some or maybe even all of that money to healthcare, to climate change, to things where it actually make a bigger difference to American lives. And so that's the question I was trying to ask. It's, I guess, you know, it will make some of my former colleagues at the DOD not super happy because they definitely enjoy those big budgets. But <laughs> even they were saying, even those at the DOD recognize that they don't actually need these constantly expanding budgets. And that sometimes the best way to deal with conflict is not by expanding the budgets of the Defense Department, but by providing foreign aid or perhaps addressing climate change, for instance, which many expect to be a massive aggravator of conflict going forward as we have greater water scarcity and, and change in grazing areas and geography for growing crops and the like, that that is going to bring more and more populations into conflict with one another. And maybe in terms of addressing long-term conflict, that's a bigger priority than buying a few more drones. So right. that's what I was trying to call for and reassessing how we think about how we set our priorities. And if, if what is driving us in national security is a desire to protect Americans, which is how I've always understood it, then let's take that drive and think about is spending that money on military operations the best way to, to achieve that goal. Right. So that's what I was trying to say. And so is this the beginning of a bigger project? I don't know. I mean, you know, I always have a lot of co projects cooking <laughs> and it's something that I am continuing to think deeply about and interested in continuing to pursue and press. So, I mean, my my area is international law and national security law. My husband of 25 years it works on healthcare policy and uh, welfare state policy. And we've always understood our work to be entirely different from one another. 
But actually what I'm seeing is that we're, we care ultimately about the same thing, just starting to achieve it in uh, somewhat different ways. Interesting. And we actually wrote a piece together around the same time, actually right after lockdown happened and we were stuck together (laughs) (laughs) for for days on end working in the same, in the same house, you know, we started talking about this. So it may become something more. I mean, I have a bunch of other projects I'm working on right now that are sort of at the top of the list, but I often cook ideas for five years before I start really putting pen to paper um, because I want to sort of think it through and let it settle and try to think about all the different elements. I don't think the problem's going away. I think it's only going to get greater over time. Yes, unfortunately. Well, listen, we're way past time. But I didn't want to finish before yes. just saying a few words or allowing you to say a few words about your wonderful book, The Internationalists, which I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with. We can't possibly get into, I mean, it's an enormous project in and of itself, but I perhaps let you just say a few words about it. And then I had just a couple of questions, which actually tie into what you were just saying about you and your husband, which is sort of, I'm, I'm very curious about the nature of the collaboration that gave rise to this book. It just leads to all sorts of questions about just the process. Yeah. So this book, The Internationalists, what has driven me, and maybe I'll say a few words about what led to the collaboration too here. So Scott Shapiro, who's a colleague of mine and a philosopher, and I started talking probably 15 years ago about some of the shared interests that we had. One thing I was puzzling over was the challenge to international law, which is, is international law really law? And can international law really be law if it's rarely enforced? And what does enforcement mean in international law? And he's a philosopher who uh, works on the nature of law. And, you know, I had come to realize that these were questions you couldn't really ask just in the context of international law. You had to have reference to a body of work and jurisprudence that really thinks about these questions, about the meaning of law and the nature of law. And so also was helped by the fact that we have children the same age. <laughs> so <laughs> at the time, our kids were three and, you know, newborns. And so, you know, we would get together and and our kids would play and we'd talk. And that, you know, over the course of a decade, we realized we had something interesting that was at the intersection of our projects. And we wrote an article together initially. And one thing that we realized in writing that article, which was really about is international law enforced? And if it's not enforced in the way that modern law, domestic law typically is enforced, can it still be law? We realized that Many people think that international law is enforced because there's no force behind it. There's no, there's no threat of, you know, an army coming in or police coming in to enforce it. That, you know, if you break the rules of the WTO, they don't send in, you know, the, the UN military to enforce it. And <laughs> um, so can it really be law? And so we were thinking about the question. And we realized that we had always assumed that law couldn't be enforced with force. International law couldn't be enforced with military force. But why not? And has it always been the case that, that it couldn't be enforced with war? And so that led us to kind of going back into history and realizing actually for much of human history and for most of the first several hundred years of international law's existence, it was enforced with war. And that war was in fact the main way in which states enforce the rules against one another. And so that led us to the project that became the internationalist. So both trying to understand what did that world actually look like what were its features? It wasn't lawless at all. It was very lawful. It was full of rules. And then what prompted the abandonment of that or the rejection of it? When did that rejection happen? Why did it happen? And then how did they reconstruct a new legal order that was based on the opposite 
idea that we currently live under, which is you can't enforce international law with military force except in very limited circumstances. So that's the nature of the collaboration and the conversation over time that, that led to that project. And, and, and it was a lot of fun working with someone who kind of comes at questions from a completely different perspective is, I think, really great because they don't necessarily have the same blinders on that you have if you're in the field. And if you're in the field, you tend to look at questions in the same way that everybody else does. And having somebody from outside the field saying, why is it like that? And right. are you really sure? You know, that doesn't make sense to me. It really forces you to ask yourself, oh, okay, maybe that doesn't make sense. And, and maybe I don't really understand this. And maybe I have to think about it more closely. And, and that's part of what made that collaboration so enjoyable. Interesting. And just out of curiosity, because when you read it, I mean, it sort of all reads as being in one voice. So, you know, like, did one of you write one chapter, one of you write another, or how, how did that actually work? Yeah. I mean, one nice thing about working with Scott is our, our writerly voices are very similar and they're, they're hard to distinguish from one another. And that makes it so much easier to write with him. I've written with lots of people over the course of my career, and he's by far the easiest to write with. We just happen to sound similar. I think both of us are not big fans of fussy prose, and both of us like the same things as clearly as possible. And I think that that really helps us write together. But yeah, basically, we divvied up the projects and each of us wrote um, the first draft of different chapters. Um, and then we rewrote one another's work um, pretty aggressively. Neither of us have a lot of ego in our writing. If we have a co-author we really trust, we're happy to have it completely rewritten. So I rewrote substantially a lot of what he wrote. He rewrote substantially a lot of what I wrote. We each cut you know, one another's chapters substantially because <laughs> it's very hard to cut your own work when you're writing, you know, you fall in love with what you've written and it's, and it's impossible to, to get rid of it. And, you know, yet you trust your co-author to do that in a way that you don't trust anybody else. So, right. yeah, so it, it, it was a really good writing experience in that way. You know, it wasn't something where we were rewriting one another in ways that were frustrating. We had a very similar voice and we had a similar vision of what the project was about. Interesting. Well, for any of our listeners who haven't yet read it, you should run out and get The Internationalist. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. I enjoyed reading it tremendously. Thanks. Uh, which brings me to the, the, the last question uh, of the podcast, which is what three books or articles uh, would you recommend that ideally re relate in some ways to what we've been talking about, but not necessarily? Yeah. So you did give me a little bit of warning about this, and I've been thinking about it. And I think I'm just going to honestly tell you the three books I'm reading right now, because I actually think they're all, while some of them are a little bit more of a reach, pretty connected to our work in ways that might not be totally obvious. So one is Kate Mann's new book, Entitled, which is really about misogyny, and I think is incredibly illuminating about the sort of structures, societal structures that sort of encompass the way in which we respond to men and women differently. And, you know, this field of national security is a very gendered field. <laughs> and I think it's actually useful for people to remember that and to think about it. And the book is just really clearly well-written, you know, very engaging, hard to read, frankly. I can only read a chapter at a time, but I think really important, um, particularly also given the moment that we're in. So my second book is one that's not out yet, but keep your eyes out for Sam Moyne's new book. Mm. which will be out, I think, next year. It is a book that really challenges international law and argues that international law suggests that international law and all the laws of war that have been developed over the course of the post-war era 
aren't attentive enough to concerns about actually waging war itself. They kind of have dressed it up and made it very, you know, nice and neat and yet allow wars to continue to happen and that haven't really addressed the core problem of the actual fact of war as opposed to how wars are waged. Hmm. It's going to be a very provocative book. I don't agree with it in its entirety. <laughs> I've read it in draft. I gave Sam some comments. It's going to make a lot of people really angry, but I think thinking about why you disagree with it is really important and understanding kind of what it is he's trying to say and whether there's any truth, you know, how far you're willing to go with him, I think is part of what's interesting. What's it called? I don't know whether he has a final title for it, actually, since Ah, I read it in draft. And then I've been reading the Hillary Mantle trilogy um, that starts with Wolf Hall, the, the trilogy about Cromwell. Yes. The first book is a slog, I have to say, I'll, I'll admit that. But once you get through it, it's quite gripping. And I think of Cromwell as really a kind of cautionary tale for a government lawyer. Hmm. You know, he's, he's really an enabler and constantly making compromises and trying to make his inconsistent, incoherent rulers' wishes uh, come true and ends up compromising his own principles in the process. And as I read about him, I have, I'm just at the point where things are about to turn on him. So I'm at the very end of the third book and I haven't quite, I've actually put it aside for a month because I can't quite bring myself to read it. But, <laughs> you know, it's really, I think, a cautionary note about what it is to be a government functionary and when it is that you should draw the line and and how easy it is to get compromised into thinking that your role is to is to serve the person in charge as opposed to you know letting your own humanity shine through um, well that's interesting yeah uh, especially i don't know if you saw the news this morning but the head government lawyer in the united kingdom just resigned because of boris johnson's proposal to violate international law under the brexit uh, negotiations I did not see that, but I think that's important. You know, I think people have to know where their lines are. And, you know, I think as a government lawyer or a government employee more generally, you have to have an idea of what your red line is. And you can't think, well, at least I'm making it a little less worse than otherwise would be. Exactly. You really do have to have a vision about what your ethical limits are, because otherwise you can get compromised into playing a role in something that ultimately you realize, you know, is, is indefensible and that you really, you know, should have stopped earlier. And so when I have students who go into government, I always say, read about Schmidt, who we have a a fair bit of discussion of in our book, who similarly is a kind of government functionary who lets himself become a, a really important lawyer for the Third Reich, even though he's not really a particularly good Nazi to begin with. Um, and and maybe think about if you can make it through the trilogy, Cromwell, <laughs> and and their travails, and realize you know power is very alluring, and it's important to have limits, and important to know what your limits are, and to and to really stand by them. Well, that's a really uh, important note to end on. So, Ona, thank you so much for for making the time this morning. This has been great. Thanks. And as I said before, we actually got started. We'll have to have you back sometime too soon to talk about, in fact, national security lawyering. So, I'd love that. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our next episode, in which I'll be speaking with Professor Iliav Lieblik 
of Tel Aviv University Faculty of Law on his recent work on the humanization of Yusad Bellam, a fascinating discussion on the relationship between human rights law and the Yusad Bellam regime. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you post your social media. And do follow us on Twitter at at Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on the Creative Commons license.